Good morning. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Samaritan woman added, said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and we, he would have given you living water. The woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe in me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now here, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Thank you. Morning again. <clears throat> this is our third week in this and last week in this passage. And I'll ask you another question. Last uh, first week was sort of some background information. Uh, there's a decent sized cultural gap between what we read here and what we experience and how we think today, how we talk. Uh, last week, this passage tells us a good deal about the nature of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? And, and what is the, what exactly did Jesus bring? Uh, what kind of salvation did he bring when he came? Well, I want to ask you a question here. Have you ever considered the connection between salvation and worship? What, what's the connection between, is, is there one? And if so, what is it? And, as I was preparing to preach over the last couple of weeks, 
knowing I would end up here, it, it occurred to me that my understanding of the gospel, my understanding of salvation, my understanding of worship as a newer believer, and for many years after that, was it was underdeveloped in significant ways, and this is this is one of them. I just I missed the connection, even though it's it's right there in important. And even after, I remember somebody making that connection for me and still not quite getting why it mattered or what was the significance or they were talking in a way that my brain just couldn't get or wrap itself around. What was passages like this one that God used to finally help me to see what was right in front of me and, and how you don't understand either very well, either salvation or worship, if you don't see how they come together. Here's two sentences that I think could be really helpful for a lot of us to to have ringing in our minds constantly. A failure to worship is the heart of all sin and all resulting condemnation and death. That's the first sentence. A failure to properly worship is the heart of all sin. You think about that. How do you define sin? What what is the essence of rebellion against God? And, And the answer... I think we will see in this passage, a failure to properly worship is the heart of all sin and all resulting condemnation and death. And here's the second sentence in the connection. And the restoration of proper worship or the, the giving of proper worship or proper worship is the heart of all salvation and the chief occupation for all who are in heaven. It's a big deal. In fact, I even wrote down, I probably heard that four, five, 10, 20 times, who knows, before it ever made sense to me, or I even began to get my head around that. But whether the importance of that is immediately obvious to you or not, I can assure you that it is. And as such, it's worth working at to get. So let me unpack that just a little bit more before I pray. All sin is a problem with our worship. And salvation is mainly about fixing that problem. (laughs) All sin is a problem with our worship, and salvation is about fixing that problem. God created us to be entirely satisfied in him and expressing that constantly in worship and the worship of him. Adam and Eve's sin ultimately wasn't the problem with the fruit or the serpent or anything like that. Ultimately, it was a problem with failing to be satisfied in God and therefore failing to properly worship him. The wages of this rebellion is broken fellowship with God, broken worship, further broken worship, and ultimately death, eternally broken worship. But God loved the world in such a way that he gave his only son to pay sin's wages and ultimately to restore us to fellowship and right worship with God. got to see that connection. We're saved from bad worship to right worship is the easiest way I know how to say it. God's greatest promise in Jesus is that he will save us from our sin to the everlasting joy, worship that we were made for. Again, we are saved from the sin of improper worship and we are saved to eternal proper worship. So for all these reasons, it's critical, this passage is critical, and from it it's critical that we see salvation. What is it? What is it really? Not what do I What have I kind of created it to be in my own mind? Or what have I sort of heard and held on to over the years? But what is it really, according to the word of God 
in the person of Jesus. And there were four things we saw last week concerning salvation. Everyone needs it. Everyone needs saving for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Second, salvation is in Jesus alone. There is no other salvation outside of Jesus. Number three, Jesus' salvation is for all who receive it, will receive it in faith, as Michael shared in his baptism video from Ephesians 2. It is not by works, but by grace, through faith. And finally, fourth, salvation is more than mere forgiveness of sins. That's how, unfortunately, a lot of people stop there. It is that, but it's more than that. And Many ways. It is, as I just said, forgiveness of sins so that we might be what we were made to be and do what we were made to do, namely worship God with all that we have forever and ever and ever. Well, that leads us to this sermon today. This is a sermon on worship. And just like there are four principles that I wanted to help you see on salvation last week, there are four principles from this text on worship that I want to help you to see. Number one, false worship is natural apart from salvation. I'll unpack that a bit, but the point is we're all worshipers. We're all false worshipers apart from being saved. Number two, God is seeking true worshipers. There's a lot there. Number three, true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. And fourth and last, True worship spreads. True worship can't stay with us. So here's the deal. I'm going to give you some information from this passage on the true nature of worship. But if all you do is have more knowledge when you leave here, that's a, it's a, it's a good thing to grow in your knowledge of what God's word says about worship. But for this sermon to land, we will grow in our worship. We will grow as worshipers. We will see God more clearly in his glory and respond more fully in joy and wonder and awe and obedience. And so sometimes the Spirit, Holy Spirit, gives you a spike in that. And you're overwhelmed and filled with a gladness that you haven't known ever or for a while. But oftentimes it's it's more like building a a, a, a a wall, one brick at a time. And I hope to give you a few more bricks to help deepen your worship just a a bit more as we long for Jesus to return and fulfill all of his promises. Let's pray. God, help us to understand what your word says about worship so that we can worship you as you deserve, as we were made for. Thank you for the salvation that is ours, that frees us from false worship and forgives us of all of its rebellions and frees us to true worship as we have eyes to see and behold your glory. So we, like I prayed from the fighter verse this week, that we could, for the first time, begin to see that all is rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. May we take even one more step in that direction this morning. That is to say, may our worship become one step fuller this morning. May, Maybe it'll be more than that. I hope it's more than that. But but may we, at least in faith, hold on to this in a different way than we ever have and praise you even a bit more fully than we ever have with the help of your Spirit because of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so before we get to the true nature of worship, which is the heart of this passage, the text first highlights false worship. 
In verses 19 and 20, we read, The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. He told her things about her that he couldn't have known otherwise. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but but you, the, the Jews, say that Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And to that, Jesus responded in 21 and Skip ahead a little bit to 23. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers, true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The implications of these few words are that there are true and false worshipers. There are true and false worshipers. There are There is true worship and there is false worship. I found that considering the negative of a thing is often really helpful, really helpful tool for grasping the positive of a thing. If we can learn what something isn't, it often helps us to understand better what it is. And that's what Jesus does for us here in some ways. He helps us to see what false worship is so that we can flee that. We know it's not that and go to true worship. Along those lines, and on our way to understanding what true worship is, two main things that it isn't from this text. Number one, false worship is tied to a place or a form of some sort. There was a long-standing argument between Jews and Samaritans. So the woman at the well is a Samaritan. Jesus was a Jew. There was a long-standing argument between Jews and Samaritans concerning the proper place of worship. Now, this, this is important. It's a little historical, a little factual, but come with me here. Uh, Jew and Samaritan alike understood Deuteronomy 12.5. Write that down if you want. Deuteronomy 12.5. I'm going to read it, but it's better if you read it in its context. This was significant to why this woman said what she said and believed what she believed, and the Jews as well. Here, Here it is. This is God commanding Israel. You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out, will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There's going to be a a particular place in which God would be worshipped by God's design. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flocks. There's going to be a particular place in which those things were meant to happen. Samaritan and Jew alike believed that. God would assign a proper place of worship. The Jews understood that to be Jerusalem, according to First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. God clearly determined to have Solomon, David's son, build his temple there, and he did. And you can read that story. If you're interested in it, read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and you'll see it plainly. But for two specific reasons, the Samaritans had a different understanding of the fulfillment of the Deuteronomy 12 passage. The first I told you two weeks ago, and that is that they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. They only accepted Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Therefore, they didn't have First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles to answer the question. And here's the second. They had their own translation of Deuteronomy 5, which you sort of need to do if you don't have the rest of the Old Testament to answer this question for you. But instead of God will choose, which is what I just read, Deuteronomy 12.5 says God will choose a place for his worship to happen. 
they believed it said, or at least they decided it said, God has chosen, as in he had already done it by the time that was written, the place of worship. In other words, they believed Deuteronomy taught that God had already selected this particular place. Well, and you think, well, what place was that? That place, according to the Samaritans, was Mount Gerizim. The place that God first made the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 22, the place that he gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. That's what the woman was talking about. Had God already given the place at the time he made the promise in Deuteronomy 12? Was it where the covenant had initially been made and the commandments had initially been given? We know the answer is, is no, because we have the rest of the Old Testament as well. But it is true that prior to Jesus, there was a kind of worship that was location dependent. God did command certain aspects of worship to take place in the Jerusalem temple. However, it was never ultimately the location that made worship acceptable. And even that was about to change in Jesus. For that reason, Jesus declared that true worshipers will not worship either on the mountain of the Samaritan choosing or in Jerusalem. In verse 21, he says, Woman, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And in so declaring, Jesus taught that false worship in him begins with a location or is location dependent. The second false mark of false worship is ignorance. We're going to cover this more as we talk about worship in spirit and in truth. So I just want to say a couple things here. Jesus accused the woman of, at the well, along with all of her people, of worshiping what she, they, did not know. I said this a little bit earlier, but hear me, Grace. Our very nature, we're all made in the image of God. And a part of what that means is that we all worship. We can't not worship. The only question, therefore, is what we'll worship and how we'll worship. Since Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, the world has been filled with false worshipers. Sometimes the falseness of our worship is centered on what we worship. Paul says there's really only three ways to screw this up. There's only three options. One right one and two wrong ones. One will worship the one true God. We'll either worship the one true God. We'll worship something created by God, or we'll worship something created by us. Those are the only three options. We're all going to worship, and it's going to be one of those three things. The one true God, something created by God, or something created by our own imaginations. Sometimes false worship is centered on the form it takes. Sometimes it's centered the wrong object, sometimes it's on the wrong form. There are many people in the Bible who are judged severely for attempting to worship the one true God on their own terms instead of his. And sometimes false worship is centered on a mistaken understanding of where that worship must take place, as was the case in Jesus' day. Grace, it is impossible to offer true worship to God. Worship that is honoring to God and glorifying to God in ignorance. Hear me say this. Zealously worshiping something we created and called God, which is what many do, what all of us did at one point, 
or Jesus. We, we made it up. It's our own imagination, our own concoction, and we just happen to slap the label God or Jesus on it is false worship. Likewise, sincerely, even if unknowingly worshiping God in ways he has prohibited or hasn't authorized this false worship, ignorant worship is always false worship. Again, Grace, we can't just make stuff up. Listen to this. Remember this. Tell your kids and your neighbors about this. Tell yourself this. You can't just make something up about God and worship it and call it God-honoring worship. In the same way, we can't just do whatever pops into our head. Even if the idea comes from the Bible, as in we misread the Bible and call it worship. And so hopefully, question is rattling around in your head. If that's what false worship is, and if that's not pleasing to God and does no good for us or him, what then constitutes true worship? Or what makes a true worshiper? All right, one more thing before we get there. I'm going to give you a bit of help. If you're not yet convinced this is important for you to think about, if you're thinking, all right, well, you're just using a lot of words to say something that is it even really matter all that much. Or or maybe you're thinking, I do think it matters, but I don't know how to go about this. I feel a little stuck. I'm going to give you some help from verse 23. If you're having trouble feeling if you're ever if you're having trouble feeling as you know you ought to feel about fleeing false worship and embracing true worship. Look at look at verse 23. It gives us two pieces of help. For the Father is seeking such people, that is true worshipers, to, to worship him. Two things. First, help flows from the reality that godliness always seeks godly things. Godliness always seeks godly things. In other words, when we find that God seeks something, we found without exception something truly holy, righteous, beautiful, good, and true. It is a great privilege to know what God is seeking, therefore, because whatever he seeks is an invaluable treasure. Thus, when we read that the Father is seeking such people to worship him, we ought to immediately wonder how we might honor God by being found by God to be such people. Grace, by listening well to what Jesus says next, his description of true worship and true worshipers, and by pursuing that in faith, this is awesome. We become the treasure of God. (laughs) That's awesome. And here's the second thing, the second help that we have as you lean into this and pursue true worship in you and your kids and your family and our church and the world. It's the heart of missions. It's a three-letter preposition at the very beginning. It's, it's four. Prepositions in the Bible are a big deal. I'll tell you more about that some other time. The four here, four is the preposition. The four indicates that true worshipers will be found because God is seeking them. You ever play hide and go seek and you just couldn't find the person? Or it's funny, you know, sometimes when it's a little kid and the person's right there, but they don't see it. Here's the deal. God, you don't want to play hide and seek with God. At least you don't want to be the one hiding because you'll lose every time. And here's the point. It is an inviolable truth that God finds what he seeks. He finds what he seeks. And that means that the faithful have sufficient help to be what God requires. God will find true worshipers because he makes true worshipers. That's the heart of the gospel. 
Again, then, false worshipers are not pleasing to God. God is seeking true worshipers, which means we must long to be what God seeks and that we have sufficient help to do so. All right, what then is true worshiper? What are true worshipers? God's seeking them, but he will not find them exclusively on a mountain in Samaria or in a temple in Jerusalem. Where then will they be found? Or what is it that makes for true worship? Verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Whatever constituted true worship in the past was about to change in significant ways. Jesus was about to change everything. And as we continue to work our way through John's gospel, what that means will become more and more and more plain. But here we find one correction, one clarification, and one significant change. I'm going to wrap the sermon up by looking at each of those things. One correction, one clarification, and one change. The correction Jesus made was that the Samaritan understanding of God, his word, his worship, and his salvation were all incorrect. He was correcting this woman. In order for her to become a true worshiper, she needed to have her false worship corrected. Her understanding of God, his word, his worship, and his salvation were all incorrect. Well, the Jewish understanding was right. The Samaritans, many of whom were once on the right path, had veered from it centuries earlier. The Jews, for whatever faults they had, and there were many, remained on the right path. They were in the mainstream still. Jesus left no doubt as to what was to be made of the man-made religion of the Samaritans. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. I want to be clear on this. There were true and false worshipers before Jesus came. There were true and false worshipers on earth while Jesus was here, and there are true and false worshipers since. Likewise, there were true and false worshipers, even even though the Jews were on the right path, there were true and false worshipers among them. Okay, so what do I mean? Two, two quick things. The Samaritans, because they veered off the path, could not be true worshipers. Second, Jesus did not come to bring about true worship, but to redefine it forever. So the key for us, if we mean to be the kind of true worshipers sought by God, is that we must stay on the path established and maintained by God from Adam and Eve through the patriarchs and prophets to Jesus and his apostles. That is, we must be people of the word of God. We must understand the promises made and the shadows given in the Old Testament as well as the promises kept in the true light that was Jesus in the new We must be people who live entirely in light of God's promises of future grace as we move toward the fullness of time. We cannot veer from the path of God, his revelation and his salvation, and be true worshipers. All right, that's the correction. Here's the clarification. It concerned the timing of all this. Jesus said, but the hour is coming and is now here. That sounds funny, right? It is coming and it is here. How can they both be true? when true worshipers will worship the Father. But what did Jesus mean? What changes would Jesus bring about, and when, and how, and why? And all of that will come out in the last point. But for now, let me quick say a word about the meaning of the hour. 
The hour has come and there is coming and is now here. In John's gospel, the hour always refers to the events surrounding the cross. In other words, although the woman at the well couldn't possibly have understood this yet in its entirety, Jesus was letting her know that true worship would be forever changed once he fulfilled the mission for which he was sent, taking on the wrath of God on the cross, defeating death, tearing the veil, rising from the dead, ascending to the Father's right side, and sending the Spirit to dwell in believers. That leads us to the final thing, the change that Jesus was making to the nature of God-honoring worship. It's found at the beginning of verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Well, it sounds like two changes. You'll worship in spirit and you'll worship in truth. And while it is true that there's a distinction, of course, between spirit and truth, almost certainly John had in mind those as a pair, those together as one thing, one single inseparable change. But what does that mean? Much has been made about what it means to worship in spirit. Maybe you've thought about that. Maybe you've read different things. Most of the noise is tied to the question of whether this is the Holy Spirit that is empowered by the third person of the Trinity, worship in the Holy Spirit, or whether it's talking about the immaterial part of our personhood, our spirit. Frankly, there's rather strong exegetical and theological a case that can be made for both. In fact, of the commentaries I, I read regularly and preparing to preach, I'm not joking, half go each, each, half go one way and half go the other. Okay, but here's why I think you don't need to be too worried about that. There is a strong exegetical and theological case for both. Indeed, we know from the rest of the Bible that both are actually true. Now, Jesus didn't mean both. He meant one or the other, or maybe a third option we're not thinking of. But the point is, both of those options are true. True worship is with the whole of our being, all of our personhood, body and spirit, head and heart. And it is the Holy Spirit of God alone who enables that kind of worship. That's true. You say, well... John seems to be trying to help us out in verse 24 by saying God is spirit, and therefore all who worship must worship in spirit and truth. But God is both spirit in that he is immaterial, and also the Holy Spirit is God. Well, it is clear that, again, Jesus didn't mean both simultaneously. Finally, sorting out which he had in mind is less important when we understand what he's getting at. And here's what he's getting at. His main point is that God honoring worship had taken a certain form for many years. He was answering a question that this woman was asking. It involves sacrifices and rituals. The, the way in which God had determined to be worshipped involves sacrifices and rituals. It involved a specific nation, Israel, in a specific place, Jerusalem. But all of that was about to change because Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. He is the sacrifice once for all. He is the Sabbath and the Passover. He is the fulfillment to the covenants and the promises and the law. He is the true temple. All of those things were necessary for a time to give the people of God the right categories to point them to Jesus. But the fulfillment of them all was in their midst, and he was about to truly and fully accomplish the things that all of those were only able to hint at and point to. 
Before Jesus, God honoring worship meant keeping all of his commands, offering all of his prescribed sacrifices, making all of his required offerings, and celebrating all of his appointed feasts. A time was coming at the cross and was now here in the person of Jesus, however, where all of those things would fade away in their fulfillment. And true worshipers would simply worship in spirit and truth, in the fullness of our being, in the Holy Spirit's power, and according to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Again, the main point that Jesus was trying to make was that the debate over the proper place of worship and sacrifice was soon to become an irrelevant question. Now that Jesus had come, those things would no longer matter. Grace, on this side of the cross, this is our command. True worship for us, the kind the Father seeks. Worship on the proper path or in the proper stream. Worship not in ignorance, but in truth. Worship in the Spirit. Worship in Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. Worship that is pleasing to God is worship that is in Spirit and truth. Failure to do so is why we need to be saved. And being able to do so is what it means to be saved. That's an awesome gift. That's amazing grace. So finally, in this sermon, by going back to the end of the passage, just like I did last week. In it, the woman's response to all of this, the woman at the well, in her response, we see proof of salvation in her and genuine worship. When our faith is truly in Jesus, when we truly experience the new birth and the salvation of God, we'll leave everything behind and follow Jesus. And likewise, the clearest expression of genuine worship and spirit and truth is that praise flows out uncontrollably. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. It comes from a book I have on my shelf. I go back to it all the time. It's called Reflections on the Psalms, this green book. You should borrow it. He writes this. Maybe you've heard this. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good it is. It is frustrating to come suddenly at the at the turn in the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care no more for it than a tin can in the ditch, to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. To worship in spirit and truth is to be filled with awe and wonder and joy and satisfaction in God. When you have no desire to share the glory of God and Jesus Christ, at worst your salvation is fake and at best your worship is deficient. When you desire to share it, but you're regularly checked, stopped from doing so by something like fear or embarrassment or busyness. Your worship is deficient and you're not worshiping in spirit and in truth. When you seek to share your worship and it comes out primarily in the way of facts and arguments and information impartation, your worship is deficient. But when your worship comes out, as it did for the woman at the well, freely and naturally and uncontrollably in spite of formidable obstacles, which your social position had put her in, her sin had put her in, in light of the word of God, and in such a way that God causes it to spread, then you may have confidence that you really have been saved and that your worship is, in fact, 
in spirit and in truth. And so may we never forget, Grace, that all of this, all of it is a gift of of God. It is a gift that is both already and not yet. Through faith in Jesus, we are saved and we truly worship, even as we're being saved on our way to full worship. And all of that is in Jesus Christ, the one who offered himself to the woman at the well, though she was of the wrong gender and in the wrong place and worshiping at the wrong time and among the wrong people. He offered himself to her, even as he's offering himself to us now. Will you receive him in his salvation and faith? Will you acknowledge that he alone is the proper object of our worship? and the only thing that can truly satisfy our God-given longings. If you will, you will be the kind of worshiper sought by God, a worshiper in spirit and in truth.